and welcome to Science Shambles producer Trent here. This episode is a recording of the live Q&A show we do each and every Sunday, well pretty much each and every Sunday. That is live and free on our YouTube channel so you can go to youtube.com slash cosmic shambles to see who's coming up each week and watch live and ask questions live as well. If you've got any questions uh, for our guests each week, you can email them to us as well at contact at cosmicshambles.com and we will put them to our panel. And since this is a recording from the live show, bear in mind, if there's a couple of little sound blips or anything like that here and there, that is because, well, we do do it live over Zoom and Skype and stuff. So you know how uh, finicky those things can be at times. And also, since it's live on YouTube, uh, some elements might be slightly more visual than uh, we would normally have for a podcast. So keep that in mind while you're listening. If you'd like to support the Cosmic Shambles Network, you can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and subscribe and you get lots of extra stuff as well as a warm glow for supporting all the stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles. The Tips for Existence series is exclusive to Patreon supporters where Robin chats about meaning in a meaningless universe with lots of different entertainers and scientists like Tim Minchin and Brian Green and Katie Brand and Neil Gaiman. Nicole Stott, Andrean, and lots, lots more. And also there's the Uncanny Hour documentary series. That's exclusive to Patreon, where we look at some of the weird and wonderful bits of counterculture, like UFOs and the films of John Carpenter and Paul Jennings and Silent Running and all that sort of stuff. That is hosted by Robin with lots of special guests on that, like Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and pretty much everyone from the League of Gentlemen, Mark Kermode, Linda Marrick, Jenny Roan, Helen Chersky, Samira Ahmed and lots more as well. Patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. You can also go and rate and review the podcast five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That helps us out. Check out everything else at CosmicShambles.com. And now on to this week's Q&A show, I hand you over to your hosts, Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday Science Q&A. We've got loads of things for you today and uh, we're going to be talking uh, about planets and we're going to be talking about the shape and nature of the universe and plenty of other things as well. And we may well talk about whale poo, but it's been a while. But Helen is always prepared to hear questions uh, about whale poo and indeed other creatures that live in the sea. What can be done with air excrement as well? We'll find out. If we haven't got a question about that, you may well want to ask us a question live in the chat. Uh, If you do have any questions you want to ask us, then you can either tweet us at, at Cosmic Shambles or you can also just pop it, as I just mentioned there, into the live chat. A uh, couple of things to mention before we get started. We have a new Tips for Existence that's just gone up and uh, that is with uh, Anil Seth, who is fantastic, who's written this. There it is. It's good. Just got it here. Uh, this new book, which is not out yet, it's called Being You and it's all about the science of consciousness. I had such a fun time with, I've done a few things with Anil. Um, one of my favourites was when we had him on Infinite Monkey Cage and we had someone else on, a philosopher, who uh, seems reasonable keen on simulation theory and I can tell you now that Anil is not keen on simulation theory and uh, it was fun, there were sparks I'm kind of on Anil's side in terms of simulation theory, I think it's a a reasonably dull and pointless thing which is fun if it's used in a Philip K. Dick story but not much use in the world of science but anyway we talked about lots of things like that as well as about when he actually lost his consciousness in terms of uh, being under general anaesthetic which is the nearest we come to to losing ourselves in, uh, in our entirety so you can listen to that on Tips for Existence we also have uh, a new episode. <coughs> Excuse me, the trouble is because we're now doing it in the morning, I, my, I haven't really warmed up at all with that. There we are, that's better. Um, uh, so uh, we also have a new one with Jesse Cave, Book Shambles with Jesse Cave uh, and uh, Josie Long. And Jesse Cave's new book um, is really, really beautiful. Um, so you can hear that. And we are going to be doing a new series of Uncanny Hour soon. Uh, but there's loads of tips for existence going up. And we've got loads of new bits and pieces. Uh, and uh, on top of that, if you can support us for our Patreon, if you get the chance, that is fantastic obviously we still haven't really properly gone back into being able to work live i had one gig in chippenham this week which is very nice nice to be down in chippenham chippenham is a if you don't know chippenham in the west of england it's it's got a a, a character a really wonderful character to it i remember playing chippenham once and a man came up to me and said i just so you know i really hate what you do on the radio um, but i really enjoy watching you live and that's the kind of compliment you'll get in chippenham it's a kind of a thing which say just so you know i enjoyed that but i hate much of your other work as well (laughs) anyway today we are joined by uh well everyone we've had everyone on before including uh susie imber uh uh so 
Associate Professor of Planetary Science at the University of Leicester. And uh, we have Lisa Harvey-Smith, who it's, it's an evening for her because she's a uh, professor at the uh, University uh, of... Is it NSW? Is it? Is, is that what it's New actually? New South Wales. It is New South Wales, isn't it? Yeah. It's not called NS... I never know what has an acronym and what doesn't, especially with well, scientists and stuff W's like that. W's like three symbols on its own, so you might as well just say New South Wales. Yeah, no, that's that, 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 that's, that's fair enough. Um, and uh, also has uh, a book out now, The Secret Life of Stars, Astrophysics for Everyone. And that's for everyone. Astrophysics can be for everyone. That's that's very much the point that I think you proved in that book. Uh, with some of us, it takes more work than others. It has to be accepted. Um, and also, as usual, we have Helen Chersky with us. Um, Helen, hello. Hello. Um, I have actually, so you mentioned the whirlpool thing entirely coincidentally, but I have actually, I did actually interview someone about shark poo this week. But anyway, that's... <laughs> I knew there was something. I definitely, because we haven't mentioned it for a but as you know, I have uh, psychic abilities which confound the world of physics, much to Brian Cox's annoyance. And I got some sense of something, you know, oceanic and excremental that had been in your... What were you dealing with shark poo uh, for this week? Uh, well, so sharks fertilise reefs. So I was interviewing a coral reef scientist about uh, how the open ocean affects reefs. And they said, well, since sharks, most shark species feed out in the open ocean, they... They take lots of nutrients from the open ocean and they do all their pooing over, you know, inshore near coral reefs when they come back to the coral reefs. So they they bring fertilization to the coral reefs from the open ocean. Um, and that's apparently quite important for reefs. And so it's important if sharks disappear, then you don't get their poo and then the coral reef suffers. So that was that was the gist of the conversation. It'll be on the Ocean Matters podcast in a couple of weeks. Um, but I have a show and tell this week uh, and a story that goes with it. So this week in science, we are going back to 1913. And uh, there was a paper, paper published that year by a father and son combination, which is quite unusual in science. And it was, I have to get their names right here. It was Sir William Henry Bragg and Sir, and William Lawrence Bragg. Lawrence was the son and he was only uh, 23 when this paper was published. And the paper was called, this was only um, 20 years or a bit less than that after the discovery of x-rays. And the paper was called The Reflection of X-rays by Crystals. And what they had worked out was that if you shine x-rays, so a crystal in this case is a metal, actually, that's what they were looking at. But the metal is made up of um, a regular, like an egg box, like lots of egg boxes, basically, a regular structure of atoms. And this was before any one had finally confirmed that atoms exist but they'd worked out that if you shine uh, x-rays at at a crystal a metal piece of metal and you alter the angle of the metal then you see different patterns of where the x-rays are really strong and where they're really weak and from that you can work out the structure inside your metal crystal so you can work out how far apart the atoms are for example and this was the this opened up um, x-ray crystallography which then allowed us to see into all kinds of molecules and um so they won the nobel prize for it in 1915 and um the younger Bragg was only 25 when they won that prize. So he is still the youngest ever Nobel laureate. But just before that, his brother had been killed in uh, at Gallipoli in the First World War. So within the space of a few weeks, they lost a family member, gained a Nobel Prize. Um, but the two Braggs were these powerhouses of physics in Cambridge. Uh, well, the second one was in Cambridge. And the, the story I had, so that's, that's the science this week, is that there was this critical realisation that using X-rays could let you see inside atomic structures and that just opened the door to all kinds of things the story that comes with it is that um so the second brag the younger one when he grew up he was the cavendish professor so his dad had been a famous physicist he was a famous physicist and when i was a phd student in cambridge it turned out i lived a few doors down from the next one in the chain who was not a famous physicist and uh, his wife used to come round and give us boxes of broken biscuits we were PhD students. I don't know why she felt this was necessary. She would turn up and she would give us, you could buy boxes of broken biscuits. I didn't know that was a thing. Anyway, and, and then we found out that her husband was the son of the brag who was the son of the brag. And we said, you know, what, what's it like to be married to a man who is, you know, the son of the famous physicist, who's the son of the famous physicist? And she looked up from the broken biscuits and she said, he's an idiot. Never marry an idiot. <laughs> Sorry for this guy, because not only was he not, he not a famous physicist, but his wife thought he was an idiot. So I, in, in these family relationships, I think we always have to be mindful of the other members of the family who may feel slightly overlooked um, in in the world. And so that was apparently the next brag down. Anyway, so that is this week in science. It's the uh, reflection of x-rays by crystals.
That is, I mean, I suppose you're under such pressure, aren't you? If you do marry someone where you think, if you've got that kind of Francis Galton perspective on, on genius and you believe that it's genetic and you think, hang on a minute, there's two Nobel Prizes in this family. I can't wait to get, you know, the next Nobel Prize up on my mantelpiece with this person I've married. It might be incredibly smart, but at the same time, not a Nobel Prize winner and therefore immediately in context to that family becomes stupid. Regression to the mean. It's a terrible thing. It's um, a disastrous yeah. regression to the mean. You should, you <laughs> scientists should need to start dealing with that. Um, uh, thank you very much for that. And thank you as well for the shark poo story. I look forward to uh, to listening to that. It's always interesting with science. It's like when we had Hugh Warwick on, who, uh, you know, what wonderful, uh, passionate, curious naturalist. And he always talks about how otter poo, if he ever sees otter poo, he basically, he will bend down and he will be sniffing the otter poo. And, he, and he'll say to his friends, honestly, it's just fascinating, he said, because it's like jasmine tea and Earl Grey. And it's, a, it's that interesting thing how everything can become beautiful in some way or other uh well not everything but many things can become beautiful that we do not expect we, when we step in them we would imagine would be beautiful um lisa hello good evening uh obviously good for, evening. For, for you we're just thinking of, of astrophysics for everyone what do you think is when, when you start you know with people like me who who uh you know find some some areas of, of of science very problematic and are not scientists what do you think of the first walls that you actually see where when you're talking to people you go ah here is something which requires a little bit of extra work to get over it yeah i think there's a lot of walls in science and <laughs> i mean <laughs> You know, when we go to university, we study a particular discipline of science like physics or astrophysics. Um, there are so many sub-disciplines uh, within that. But we are we forget we've, got, we've gone through so many brick walls like learning that, OK, um, the basic things that we observe in our natural everyday environment, they're not necessarily always true. Um, like if you're near a big mass or, um, you know, you're traveling at high speed near the speed of light. Um, time isn't necessarily as we expect or, um, you know, the speed of light being a, a sort of a boundary that we can't get past. All of that is kind of weird. And when we're near a, a big mass, we actually experience um, a warping of space and time. Those are things that just sound like magic and they sound like they're made up. But actually, when we go through um, the process of learning the mathematics behind it, it uncovers this, this sort of beautiful, uh, magical world where we can then make sense of some of these extreme environments that we, we can no longer, um, you know, imagine. So what, what I do is, a, I guess, as in my science communication role, try to get from the way that I think, and that is very visually and very simply, and try and sort of communicate over those barriers so we don't need to learn all the maths. You don't need to freak out about these um, strange magical things. They're actually really fascinating and interesting and explaining how we can, you know, kind of understand this stuff in terms of um, metaphors and and things that we might understand in our natural everyday lives. So I, th I think that's the only way you can do it. Do you think that we should have, I, I've talked to quite a few physicists who, who feel that the in a lot of secondary school education science is still too much about levers and pulleys and yeah we should kind of get you know even in primary school just getting that little bit of a sense because i think it is it's an absolute shock when you first find out that time is not just this thing that is exactly the same for every you know that the moment you change speed then then actually time the, the experience might be the same but what it is from one perspective to another is is it if you don't find out about that till your 20s it feels like you've had a lot of secrets kept from you. Whereas you can you've hear been about lied to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, and it, it's true. I think I think we need to emphasise more the, the scientific method and thinking. And you know that was the magic of Einstein, really, and and the genius of the way he approached problems was that he may not have necessarily been the strongest mathematician when he started his work because he wasn't given the best you know educational background in that. But he. He thought about problems creatively and he thought about them in a way that opened up possibilities that then could be tested mathematically. So going back to your question, though, you know, I do a lot of work here in Australia with um, teachers, primary school teachers um, and in high school to try to um, encourage the really good practice I see a lot now, which is helping young people to solve, identify problems in their community and to solve those problems. So, you know, project-based learning, um, type techniques and and actually trying to link phys physics and science to the real world because that's the only way you can learn and engage and 
why should kids care about levers and pulleys and you know fulcrums and you know angles who who cares unless it's actually given a context so i think that's the the gift we can give to the world is to who cares well actually i care because i like to you know not have diseases and i like to um you know travel safely and communicate across the world look at us now so you know this is what science and technology enables and that's the magic of it and we need to communicate that really well brilliant and you've got a show and tell for us as well haven't you Oh, I do actually. Yeah, no, it's another book. Um, so I'm in Australia now. I'm in fact a citizen here and very happy here. But um, I'm originally from Essex. So I grew up in a little village called Weathersfield near Braintree in Essex. Um, and when I was about 12, I got into amateur astronomy in a big way. I fell in love with the night sky and um, went to my local astronomical society, which is North Essex, uh, which is called Braintree Astronomical Society. Um one of my first field trips with them was to um, the London Planetarium. And it was a special event for, um, I think it was, you know, one of the national forums for astronomical societies. And it was really exciting. It was about 3,000 old men and me as a 12-year-old girl. Um, but I went there and there was a couple of seats next to me. And in the middle of the planetarium um, show, I noticed a lot of sort of commotion at the back of the room. And somebody walked in, everyone turned around and looked. And it was Sir Patrick Moore. He came and sat right next to me and, um, yeah, later on I got to speak to him and it was just one of the most brilliant um, days of my life, I think. And I, for some reason, I cannot explain it, I took my book with me, The Amateur Astronomer. Um, this is the 1990 copy. I'd already got a 1957 version, I think a second edition from the Oxfam shop um, near me. But <laughs> this is a brand new version and um, he actually signed uh, to Lisa, with all best wishes, Patrick Moore, March 2013. Uh, sorry, 1993. <laughs> Overestimating how how uh, underestimating how long ago that was. But well, what anyway, we've learned that, there, Lisa, is obviously you have been exciting. using your knowledge of Einstein there to manipulate the nature of time, and that book was both yes. from 2003. Yeah, it's brilliant work. Um, it is. It's a lovely. I, I read his book. Can you speak Venusian? I haven't read that one. I think he wrote over 120, didn't he? Though. Yeah. He this, this, yeah. Can, can you speak okay. Venusian is a lot of fun. It, it's based on a, uh, in fact, if anyone watching this after this of you, I think it's on YouTube, One Pair of Eyes, which was this beautiful documentary where he went and met what he kind of described as as uh, alternative thinkers. And he meets a guy who can speak Venusian and stuff okay. like that. And it's a wonderful parade of kind of uh, eccentrics. And I'd highly recommend that book as well. Fabulous. Uh, I would love to see well, that interview with Pat Patrick had such a distinctive speaking style. And, you know, his style and, you know, if you, you got someone just as eccentric, but in a different way on the other side that would just be proper fly on the wall i, I will send you the link because i think you will when, when you need to love this now uh uh susie obviously you do uh, well, well we're going to be talking about uh um a, a little bit of planetary exploration so how many of the languages of the other planets of the solar system can you speak all of them actually i think yeah at this point you know i spent my life at this point you know i spent my life trying to learn other languages so yeah everything which, which do you find the most difficult um you know, Mars is tough, obviously, but it's a popular one, so that's not too tricky. Uh, you know, outer solar system a bit more tricky, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, so. Um, that's your show and tell done. We're going to make you speak Venusian <laughs> because just say Susie hasn't got a show and tell, uh, but you have got something to tell us in terms of the project you're currently working on as well. Yeah, which... I do. That's right. So I am working on a mission which is on its way to Mercury now. Um, I feel like I've been talking about it for ages because it's been on its way to Mercury for ages. Um, it launched in 2018. It's still not going to get there for another four years, four and a half years. So you might hear me say this again. Um, but it's um, it's actually exciting for us because on its journey, it takes seven years, but it's not going so straight towards Mercury. It's doing 19 laps of the solar system. And as it goes, it flies past other planets. Um, and so our instruments are on for the seven years. Some of them are on the whole way. Some of them aren't. But as you go past a planet, everyone decides to switch their instruments on if they can and get data. And so the next flyby is going to be on the 10th of August. And we're flying past Venus for the second time. Um, and last time we flew past Venus was in September last year, and that was just following an announcement that somebody had potentially found some sign of, you know, maybe there could be life in the cloud tops of Venus. So everyone was really excited about Venus at the time for that reason, and there are various issues perhaps with that that have now come to light, but initially people were excited, and then we flew past a month later, so the sort of focus was on, can we find anything when we fly past? 
um, which we uh, didn't. Um, but we're flying past again on the 10th and it's a really close flyby of the planet. We're going about 500 kilometers above the surface, which is super, super close. Um, we'll have all our instruments that we can uh, operational. And we've got things things like selfie cameras on board, which is a recent thing. You know, we didn't have selfie cameras on all the spacecraft going back, but now we do. So there'll be pictures to share. And um, it's sort of the last flyby of Venus before we start flying by Mercury itself. So that's exciting for us. Is it important? I mean, that thing where, as, as you said, there was excitement and then, then it turned out. But there is sometimes that can be written about as if it was a, a, a you know a terrible mistake. Whereas I think that these moments of excitement, it, it's a bit like when you know the, the moment of excitement that it appeared that neutrinos might travel faster than the speed of light. That there's nothing wrong with being, it, it, especially when it's that excitement says, you know what? I think it's going to take quite a lot to to prove that this really does give some irrefutable proof. But nevertheless, the excitement seems to be something that's quite tangible and important to have in that journey of discovery about our solar system and our universe and, and what we're made of. I think it's important for loads of reasons, actually. I think it's partly important so that everybody understands the way that that we do science and that actually we aren't right all the time and we can be wrong and and, and that that's okay. It's part of the process. And I, and I think that's pretty important because often, you know, there's sort of been a bit of a backlash against expertise and the experts and all this kind of thing. And I think it's really important to show that actually we're fallible too and we make announcements and we can be right and we can be wrong and we can have a big conversation about it and that's okay. So I think it's important in that sense. And also... While there may not be life in the cloud tops of Venus, a lot more people now realise that Venus's cloud uh, cloud regions actually at room temperature actually are at reasonable pressure. Nobody knew that before. So we have kind of shared awareness of a planetary system with people who perhaps wouldn't have been interested otherwise. So good things come of these things, I think. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Well, now we've got first question for you, in fact, it's from Charlotte, aged eight. And this is a great question because it about school and and her question about gas planets and i think i was probably in my 30s before i knew that jupiter was a, a, a gas planet i knew nothing you know it was something nothing i'd ever been taught at school charlotte knows much earlier she's age eight and she wants to know how do gas planets stay in shape and is there anything in in any way it's possible to walk on them oh this is a great question oh this is a great question actually um so Gas planets, uh, gas planets stay in shape because of gravity. So gravity is sort of pulling everything in all directions towards the center. And that's how you kind of end up with your nice sort of round shape. It's not, they're not actually uh, an exact sphere. Um, they're spinning around and they spin really fast. The gas giants, um, Jupiter and Saturn, about 10 hours of for their rotation. So they're spinning quite quickly and that sort of flattens them down a bit. So they're a little bit fatter at the equator than they are at the poles. Um, uh, but yeah, so gravity is what keeps them in place. There were loads of really interesting things about the gas giants. People often think, oh, maybe I could walk on it. Maybe I could, why don't we send astronauts to go and have a, you know, check it out. Um, the outer regions, of course, are gas. And for the gas giants in particular, Saturn and Jupiter, they're predominantly hydrogen and helium. Um, so there's sort of nowhere to step. It's a bit like saying, um, I'd like to go and step on the fluffy cloud in the sky. Like I'd love to, but I'm going to fall through it. And exactly the same would happen with Jupiter. It looks solid to us, but it's not actually solid. Um, but they're really visually appear appealing. They've got sort of bands and the bands move at different speeds and create these sort of beautiful patterns in the, in, in the colours. Um, and in fact, you know, strictly speaking, there is a place where you could step. If you go really, really, really far in through all these huge layers of gas, then there's a, a solid core right in the very middle, probably made of rock and gas. Um, I wouldn't advise it because the temperature and pressure at that point is insane. So the, the temperature is probably hotter than, than the sun um, and the pressure is crushing. And um, so it's not a great place to go. But there is sort of something solid in the middle of the planet. You just can't see it because of the really thick atmosphere. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that question. This is uh, a question from Masby, who wants to know, when the Big Bang happened and expanded into the universe, did the expansion happen faster than the speed of light? Oh, good. An easy one. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so this is a really interesting one. The people, this is something I was talking about earlier. You know, the, the way that we think about time and space is very different. Um, it, the way that space and time actually work in reality on the big macro scale in the universe is very different from how we understand it and the way that we experience it on a daily basis. So the, the thing about the Big Bang is that um, it, it was essentially, it wasn't an event that happened or an explosion that happened in the universe. It was just simply a point where all of space and time was in one place. And then all of space essentially started expanding. So space-time expanded from a point. 
And what that means in the way you can sort of conceptualise it, the way I imagine it, is that essentially just it's like blowing up a balloon. There's nothing in the middle. So it's, it's, it's hard to conceptualise even as a balloon because it's not a surface with something in, in the middle. So another way you can imagine it is that just you've got a bunch of, let's say, stars and galaxies today, but space between the objects, space between the stars and galaxies, the actual space, the gaps are expanding but the points are staying as they are. So things are expanding very quickly in the universe. Um, if you look at it in a way that is linear uh, and you, you imagine from the outside, you would see um, things, points in space, are further apart today than the speed of light would allow. But basically, all that the speed of light is is a cosmic, um, it's a cosmic speed limit for two objects that could have once been in a single point. So if you um, get two particles and they're sitting right next to each other and then you fling one off this direction, you fling one off the other direction, um, they can never move fast, faster than light apart. But if you get, um, if you look at the universe as a whole, because the space between those points is expanding, if you take a snapshot of that later, they can appear to have moved further than the speed of light allows because the space, the actual gaps between are growing. So that's really complicated to think about. But essentially, it's the difference between looking at it in, a, in the way that you learn about, about space and time in high school and the way that Einstein talked about space and time, and that is that space and time are relative. So it's essentially the way relativity and the theory of relativity is telling us the space and time. So yes, if you, look, if you were God and you were standing outside the universe, it would look like the universe was expanding faster than the speed of light. But in reality, if you're inside and you're a particle and you're measuring another particle, you can never measure that moving away from you faster than the speed of light. So it's, it's two different perspectives on the same thing. Brilliant. Easy. Thank you. Yeah, no, everyone's got that. That's fine. <laughs> it's such a weird thing when you, again, counterinstinctual or one of those things, like when you find out there's more than one infinity. I remember doing a show about that and everyone was furious. What, what, I mean, like there's an infinite go... number? Is oh, don't oh. Get, if you ask the mathematician. Oh. It's, it's, it's chaos. <laughs> the whole Hilbert's <laughs> Hotel thing, there people are, get very... Theories. Cross about that. Tell me about that later. <laughs> and, and then, then when you get told that you know nothing can move faster than speed of light, nothing except the universe is allowed to the universe itself is allowed to expand faster than speed of light, but nothing inside it is, and you go and everything becomes. But it's uh, that's the best reaction to have. That's what a lot of my brain does during these Sundays. Um, question well, no, for the you: next uh, reaction is to work out how to wind them up about it. Actually. Reaction number one is the face. Reaction number two, one is the face. Reaction number two is, oh, there's fodder. There's fodder for making them cross here, should it become necessary. So, yeah, if you ever need to wind a mathematician up, just tell them all about the single infinity and watch them go redder and redder. Yeah, and that you're just being, you know, a philosophy graduate or something, of course, as we know, philosophy is often used as an accusation, however useful ultimately philosophy is. This is a question from uh, Daryl. Uh, this is for you, Helen. Uh, Daryl wonders, if I remember correctly, isn't lithium something we filter out of groundwater in the USA, at least, before using it as drinking water? If so, could we capture this lithium and resume it? Uh, or, or I don't know what resume it means. Or, or, or is it not large enough quantities to make it financially viable? Um, so I just made an episode of Fully Charged about how the groundwater, how the groundwater under Cornwall, if you go deep enough because of the granite, it does have enough li enough lithium in it that you can extract it just from the water. So you pump the water up, you take the lithium out, you put the water back. Um, it works because there's a lot of lithium there. I didn't know that they pumped it out of. I suppose if you're, if you're there's always a little bit of lithium if you've got those kinds of rocks, and so if you're filtering it out, if you're filtering everything out, you'll filter some lithium out. The thing that make the thing that maybe means it wasn't useful in the past but it might be useful now in the past to extract lithium from water because it's so dilute was a really complicated process and now what people have put a lot of money into developing is um, membrane technologies and absorption technologies which basically act like a little sponge so you can have a you can have a, a sponge-like material you you force the water through it and if you are selective, if your sponge is set up right, the lithium bits, anywhere where they stick to a sponge, they will stay stuck. And then once the water's gone through, you can collect all the lithium from the inside of your sponge. And those technologies are getting much, much, much better. 
So in the past, taking lithium out of water was a big, complicated process. But if you can turn it into this filtering thing and have very selective sponges for different um, uh, atoms, not just lithium, then it might become worth doing. Because if all you've got to do is just run it through a different filter, you might as well just have all your selective sponges when you're filtering everything else out and you get some lithium instead of non no lithium. So in the past, the dilution would almost certainly have been a problem, but perhaps in the, these are quite new technologies. Scaling them up is still, they're still trialing them. Basically there's like 20 at the moment that they're trialing at this company in Cornwall. But once they've worked out how to do it, it might mean you could get tiny amounts um, from other sources, like just as a routine thing. And it would be a small contribution. It wouldn't fill the world's needs, but you know, every little helps. Why not use it? So yeah, yeah maybe in the future, but not yet. Brilliant. Thank you, Lance Helen. And uh, now, Susie, this is for you. This is from Jocelyn, who would like to know, is it possible there was life on every planet in our solar system? We just arrived far too late to ever see any trace of it. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> yes, well, maybe. I mean, <laughs> that's my standard answer when it comes to aliens. Yes, well, maybe. Um, yeah, so uh, the idea is that obviously, you know, life formed on the Earth, perhaps life not as we know it could have formed elsewhere. It might have looked a bit different. Uh, would we Would we know, I think? And we are looking for signs of past life on other planets. So looking for signs of past life, for example, you know, a great place to look is Mars. Knowing that Mars didn't look that dissimilar to the Earth four or so billion years ago in its early life. So maybe life could have evolved there um, and some things happened a few billion years ago to Mars that made it less uh, easy for life to exist and perhaps then that life ended. And so the, the one that I, I'll mention is that it's magnetic fields switched off um, and magnetic fields are quite important for habitability. So no one quite knows why the magnetic field switched off. That's that's um, sort of a big debate at the moment. There's lots of different theories there, but we know that it did. And so perhaps that made it uninhabitable. So certainly looking for life and maybe history of life under the surface of Mars, perhaps in the rocks, for example, where there'd have been less radiation. Um, looking for life or history of life on the moons of some of the giant planets. We've got some, some moons that are really interesting. They've got big, thick ice crusts and they've got liquid underneath, potentially some um, very salty water. Um, underneath the surface so you know maybe this is Helen's area maybe looking for life on uh, on on uh, on the moons of the other planets perhaps in the oceans, subsurface oceans um, so the answer is we don't know we're looking we're looking for not necessarily aliens to pop up and say hi today but maybe if there had been life they would have left behind some traces that we could then find or we can find evidence of processes that would have perhaps enabled life and that's something else that we've been looking at recently so there are processes that happen on the earth for example, the bottom of the oceans um, at hydrothermal vents, there are processes that happen, maybe life formed there on the Earth. Maybe there are similar processes on these moons and we can look for those processes that tell us that actually if that happened on the Earth and it happened there, it's more likely that maybe life could have evolved. Um, but you know, obviously we haven't found anything yet. And as we start looking elsewhere in the universe at different planets orbiting different stars and realising there are billions of planets, um, that sort of raises the question as well about and the uniqueness of the Earth in our solar system as well. Do you have any thoughts on, uh, in, in Carl Sagan's uh, TV series Cosmos, there was that wonderful moment where he talked about perhaps there could be life inside a gas giant, perhaps there would be these things, and they have, they have these rather beautiful science fiction illustrations of floaters, these kind of huge, almost Zeppelin-like creatures that would float through the atmosphere. Do you, do you have any, you know, th those moments where it, we might have no scientific, you know, real evidence for but but the idea of contemplating the possibilities of what life would have to be on some of these planets well i mean in a way that's exactly what we have to do if we're going to try and look for life elsewhere we have to use our imaginations because it's not going to look like what we can see around us so you have to think about around us so you have to think about other options what could it be like how would i know like if there were zeppelins and i'm not saying there are but if there were zeppelins and they're gas giants how would we know what could we send that would give us the answer and so in a way these thought experiments are actually really important when you're designing future experiments because you want to design something that would have the potential to see the kinds of things that it's possible could exist brilliant thank you susan Steve Thompson. Hello, Steve, who's a, a, a regular watcher and uh, also sometimes player of the laser harp as well. I hope it's that Steve who's watching. Uh, um, Steve would like to know, I've done some astrophotography taking remote control uh, uh, various telescopes around the world. What objects can an amateur like me hope to be the first to discover? Oh, great question, Steve. And um, yeah, there are actually 
actually quite a lot of things, surprisingly enough, that you can um, get named after you. Um, and, you know, even named after other people if you want to. So um, the main body in the world that um, runs the naming of all astronomical objects is called the International Astronomical Union. So all professional astronomers like myself um, are members of that organisation and they're the ones that um, kicked Pluto out of being in the solar system. <laughs> well, not quite, being a planet. And um, also sort of, you know, cover the naming of, of stars and that kind of thing. Um, but a lot of amateur astronomers can do really good work, um, you know, discovering things like um, comets. And famously, that's, you know, one of the, the main bodies that um, come into the solar system from very far away. They can be on parabolic or even hyperbolic orbits and literally just come into the sol inner solar system once and disappear again. So a lot of amateur uh, astronomers can do great work uh, discovering comets. They can discover uh, minor planets or other asteroid-type bodies. Um, so any sort of rocky stuff or rocky icy stuff is definitely uh, one that you can name after yourself. So a lot of these comets will have a, like an official designation um, depending on the type of comet and then a, a date when it was discovered, and then they'll have an official name uh, of the discoverer or co-discoverer. So you could be a famous comet. Why not? I have an asteroid named after me. Do you? Yes. Yeah, well someone contacted me, someone lovely contacted me and said, I saw you speak and I really enjoyed, you know, listening to you. And I thought I would just um, get in contact with this body that you mentioned. And um, they've agreed to name an asteroid after you. So there you go. Where, where is it? Do you know Do you know anything about it? I think it's fairly insignificant, honestly, but, you know, it's still exciting. <laughs> Maybe one day it'll approach the Earth and hit it and then I'll be super famous, you know, because yeah. you know, <laughs> for all the wrong reasons. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Inside this volcano, I'm afraid it's the only way to destroy the Susie Imber asteroid that's coming towards us. Yeah, this um, can really backfire. Yeah. <laughs> um, Helen, I keep question, quiet about that. Uh, um, question from Hazel. Uh, this is interesting because I, I was dealing with this the other day while simmering some vegetables. Uh, Hazel would like to know why does adding salt to water reduce the cooking time of vegetables? What science is happening here? Uh, because it increases the boiling temperature. So uh, boiling is not this. People think of boiling as this thing that happens at 100 degrees C. And actually, that is not the case at all. Uh, boiling is just a process that happens when basically, well, when the bubbles, when vapor bubbles that form at the bottom can get all the way to the top. So your entire liquid is the same temperature. But um, the the process of boiling happens. It's to do with vapor, the way that vapor escapes from the liquid. So um it, you can improve, you can change it by changing the pressure, because if you lower the pressure, it makes it easier effectively for vapour to escape, for these bubbles to escape. So you can, you can actually boil water at room temperature. If you uh, take the air out of the container it's in, eventually it will start boiling. So, and, you know, if you go up a mountain, uh, then boiling, as Susie, I'm sure, has experience of this, trying to cook things at very high altitude. So annoying. Yes. So annoying, <laughs> trying to make a cup of tea, but the water never gets to 100 degrees. British so, problems. So boiling is this, it's it's not it's not a hard thing. It's a process that happens depending on the conditions. And so what adding salt does is it raises the amount of energy you need in the water before the boiling process, before this process of bubbling starts happening. And so because there's more energy in the water, then it, it's heating up your vegetables more so it can reduce the cooking time. It does have some other consequences, I think, in terms of how tough the vegetables are sometimes and things like that. But in principle, the same amount of energy has gone in um, Cooking is quite sensitive to the exact temperatures that things happen. So you don't always want things to be hotter because there are pro like pro proteins go through transitions and all, you know, carbohydrates and fats, they shift around depending on very exact temperatures. So you don't necessarily want more and you don't necessarily want it to be hotter. But if you're in a hurry, that probably helps. So that's why adding salt reduces the cooking time. It is actually quite there's, there's a whole load of complication on the food side of that. But the water side of it is relatively straightforward. Brilliant. Thank you. Very much. Uh, the question for Susie. Uh, this is uh, the question is from Cookie Thirty Two, and they want to just know why Mercury. It seems to be the <laughs> least discussed of the planets. Yeah, lots of people ask this. Yeah, lots of people ask this because actually, if you ask anyone what they're interested in when it comes to planetary science, no one is going to say Mercury. So, or maybe they will after this. But so this is kind of a lifelong question that those of us interested in the inner planets have to answer. Um, Mercury is interesting to me 
it's interesting to everybody, I guess I should say to start with, because it's the closest planet to the sun. And that means that it experiences really extreme conditions. Um, and so it's become more relevant recently as well, because we've started finding thousands of planets around other stars, orbiting other stars, exoplanets. And these exoplanets, due to the way that we find them, we preferentially find planets very close to their parent star. Um, we don't think that means that there aren't planets further away. It's just they're easier to spot for us. And so we found lots of planets very close to their parent star. And many of them don't look anything like Mercury. They tend to be large planets as well. Again, due to the way that we find them, we find gas giants close to their parent stars more easily. But we're beginning to find rocky planets too. So if you want to understand these planets, then a really good place to start is to understand the planet that's most similar in our own solar system, which is Mercury. So that's one thing to say about them. They're becoming, it's be Mercury's becoming more relevant in that respect. For us in our solar system, it's really an extreme, um, it's, it's interesting to, to me because we don't really understand much about it. We haven't had many missions there. It's hard to look at it with a telescope. So it's difficult for us to have imaged historically. You're basically looking at the sun, so that's not great. Um, and so we, it's easier to look out at the outer planets than it is to look at Mercury. So we haven't known much about it um, historically, and, and we've only really sent one mission that's orbited the planet ever, um, which uh, did so for four years. It was a NASA mission called Messenger. And so um, the environment's very difficult to send spacecraft to. I said it takes seven years for our spacecraft to get there. So that's one thing. The journey time is massive. When it gets there, the conditions are really brutal. So um, it's a slow rotator. Uh, it rotates once every 58 days. And so that means one side is roasting. It's at about 450 degrees Celsius. The other side is about minus 180 degrees Celsius. And your spacecraft's going to go from one to the other in a few tens of minutes. So sort of the thermal load on your spacecraft in that environment is tough. So that makes it hard to go to. Um, the radiation is high. It's close to the sun. That makes it hard to go to. So there's loads of reasons why we haven't been there before. We've only been there once. And that makes it a real mystery um, in terms of the way that it formed, the way it evolved. It's got some unusual features on it you don't see anywhere else due to its location, which need more analysis. We really don't understand what they are. Um, and I have studied traditionally a, an area called space weather, which is how the sun interacts with the Earth's magnetic fields predominantly. And so we have energy and momentum that originate at the sun that get transferred to the Earth system. And in some cases, uh, it causes things like beautiful aurora that we all know and love, the northern lights and the southern lights, and that's great. Um, but there are times when the the space weather effect can be really damaging. So there are moments when the sun kind of a bit of it explodes outwards, which is called a coronal mass ejection, and smashes into the planet and kind of causes extreme dynamics at the Earth, which can cause effects for humans here on the Earth's surface. Um, for example, it can damage our satellites, which we're really dependent on, can have effects in things like power grids, communication systems, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and so these massive events that, uh, the, or the most massive event we ever know hit the Earth was the Carrington event, um, which is, you know, 150 years ago. And they don't happen very often, but the problem is we can't predict them. So there's a whole load of us um, and, and my colleagues, we call ourselves space weather forecasters, like weather forecasters looking in space, trying to work out if one of these things is coming, but they don't happen very often. They're really difficult to predict. But if they did, it would be bad. So going to Mercury is an obvious option if you want to study this area, because Mercury sits so close to the sun, it gets pummeled by it all the time. And so Mercury sees this kind of worst possible space weather event that happens at the Earth once every 100 or 200 years. Mercury sees that multiple times a day. So that's why I want to study Mercury. It's because I can use, the physics is the same between the two systems. We just don't really understand the physics well enough. So by sending missions to Mercury and understanding the interaction of the sun with Mercury, then we're understanding the fundamental physics between that interaction. And then the goal is to apply that knowledge to the earth and try to protect our infrastructure from damage in the future. So a uh, bit of a long answer to that question, but that's the I have a, I have a follow-up question. So you describe these really extreme conditions, both temperature, even away from the surface, I guess, and magnetic fields. And one thing we know about the reason we care about our satellites, for example, is that they're not very good <laughs> with magnetic fields. So how do you build how do you build a satellite that can withstand these extremes in temperature and extremes in potential magnetic field conditions? Is that just frying itself? Because that sounds like a very big challenge, big challenge. It is a very big challenge. And actually, uh, the, the technology that was required to develop the satellite that we're sending now took many, many decades. 
Um, particularly things like the ceramic materials that protect it from temperature. You know, in the past, we've had the, the previous mission had a massive shield on one side, the heat shield, and that always faced the sun. So that was that was the way of doing it. You put up an umbrella and you point it towards the sun and, and you have a system of radiators and that's how you deal with these sort of extreme temperature effects. Um, the Bevy Colombo spacecraft actually is, is a more sophisticated design in that sense. It doesn't have this umbrella. And the umbrella is actually really bad because it means there's a portion of the sky or a portion of the planet, depending on where you are, that you can never see because you've got a huge umbrella sort of blocking your view. So we have moved forward quite a lot in terms of the types of materials that we use and the way the spacecraft is designed. I think also what's interesting to ponder is the evolution of missions. So normally when you go and explore a planet, the first thing you do is fly past it, which did happen. Uh, Mariner 10 flew past Mercury, you know, many decades ago in the 70s. And then the next thing you do is you send an orbiter, but you don't really know what you're looking for. So you put some instruments on board and you see what you see. And then the next one you send is a much more sophisticated version of that orbiter. Now you know what you're looking for. You know the conditions. You can design something that's going to do a better job. And then maybe you send a lander and then maybe you send a rover and then maybe you do sample return. So you can see this evolution of things that we've seen at Mars already. And we're now reaching that sample return phase, which is fascinating. And at Mercury, we're just in that sort of early phase of, of, of exactly the same process where we're just in the kind of, you know, secondary uh, orbiter phase. Although we have submitted a white paper for a lander, you know, so it's possible in the future we could do that. I think we can see how you got a, a very convincing <laughs> argument on why Would you Mercury. fund me? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, definitely <laughs> we'll there. This, <laughs> is, uh, uh, this is uh, for you, Lisa, from uh, Luca, who'd like to know, this is about star formation, the speed of star formation, and what's the ratio to uh, the number of stars that are dying? Could the universe become overpopulated by stars? Yeah, very unlikely unlikely so that's a great question and look I've worked in my research career um, on star formation pretty much for 15 years now um, I started uh, looking at massive star formation that is the formation of the the most massive the highest uh, mass most heavy stars um, at Droddle Bank in the late uh, 90s I guess it would be and we use uh, Droddle Bank's a radio telescope so radio waves to actually peer inside the dense dusty regions where stars are forming and, and thereby we can see how heavy they are, how hot they are, what chemicals are in the environments and so on. So we, we can actually find out quite a lot about star formation um, in our galaxy. So when we do big surveys, we find out, um, you know, how many stars are forming every year in our galaxy. And it turns out in, in our Milky Way, there's about three times the mass of our sun worth of stars formed every year so it's about three stars worth um, and you might be surprised by that because you look up in the night sky you can see thousands of stars you count the number of stars in the milky way it's um, you know it's a big number um, you know billions of stars um, hundreds of billions probably and we are looking at three stars forming every year on average um, stars dying again it depends on uh, what the galaxy is doing at the time very much so Stars die in various ways. A lot of them just peter out. And um, stars live for a very long time, so billions of years. Our sun hasn't even, you know, it's lived for, for a very long time and hasn't died yet. It's about halfway through its life. Um, a lot of very old stars in our Milky Way are still shining and they're red and they fade and get fainter and fainter and fainter. But some stars explode as supernovae so we can watch them dying and that's quite fun. So essentially um, what fundamentally like is above all of this stuff is how much raw material there is for stars to form. So in the Milky Way, um, we know that our galaxy is constantly colliding with other galaxies, little galaxies like the Magellanic Clouds, um, dwarf galaxies in our local group. Um, and we are merging and interacting with those galaxies. So new gas, new fuel for stars is actually falling in onto the Milky Way all the time. Um, when you know, there's essentially only a finite amount of gas in each galaxy to make new stars. And when you run out of gas and you've, you've made all the stars out of that gas, um, the only way to get new stars is for the stars to die, to expand into space, and the gas to then slowly contract by the force of gravity and make new stars. And that process takes, again, hundreds of millions or billions of years. So, in fact, stars, once they get gas, they kind of mainly keep it. Most stars keep their gas. Um, 
So what all of that means is essentially star formation rate is going down and down and down throughout the the history of the universe. In the past, the star formation rate was very high. Um, now there's going to be less and less gas available um, to make new stars, and essentially the, the it will run out of steam. Not only that, but of course, then as galaxies form uh, groups and collide and in, emerge, you'll get bursts of star formation that will happen. But overall, um, everything is is kind of petering out. So it's a bit bit of a sad situation. Um, we're talking about trillions of years when they'll not be too many stars left, um, but just the old dying dead ones. Um, and the universe will look very different. Uh, all the galaxies will be, they won't be spiral galaxies anymore. They'll be these blobby elliptical ones. Um, everything will be kind of old and red. Uh, the universe will keep expanding and everything will be far apart and dark. And um, yeah, it's not a great future. So enjoy it while you can. That was great. That was very like a meeting there of Patrick Moore and Samuel Beckett, I think, in, in, in terms of existential <laughs> anxiety. Uh, yeah. um, this is a question for you, Susie, from Ian. Uh, Ian's been watching that Brian Cox on the television again, unfortunately, and he's been coming up with ideas. Uh, and uh, he was saying that he was just uh, fascinated by the idea that uh, current thinking is that in terms of extraterrestrials within our Milky Way, uh, that we are the uh, only civilization. Now, how do we come up with that idea? Because there's, what, uh, an approximation of 200 billion stars in Amuka? Is that roughly right? And, and, if you, and, if you think, and, and if you and if you think about all those stars, you know, the, the more we're looking and the more sophisticated technology we have and new techniques that we have to look for more planets, the more we're finding. And so, you know, people are saying, well, around most stars, there are planets, some planets, and we're just beginning to characterise them. We're just beginning to understand perhaps what they might look like. Uh, we're developing new techniques to, to probe their atmospheres. Can we try to understand their atmospheres, their magnetic fields? You know, magnetic fields traditionally very hard for us to, to, to understand or to see from large distances because you can't see them. So, but there are ways, that, techniques that we're developing to be able to look for these kind of things that, that might, might mean that, that, that these planets are habitable. So I think it's, I think it's really difficult to, to make, um, you know, I, I don't think he made a sweeping statement that said there are no others. I think he just said, you know, who knows? Uh, and, I, and I think we're still at that who knows stage. And the more we discover and the more we can characterize the planets, the more we're able to try and, you know, put firmer numbers on whether the probability of life in our own Milky Way. Um, but I think at the moment, there's too much uncertainty on the number. What do you find? I can't remember whether it was, I think it was probably Arthur C. Clarke who talked about the idea that, uh, you know, either we're alone in the universe or there are other intelligent uh, creatures in the universe. But both of those thoughts are equally terrifying, which I kind of don't agree with being equally terrifying. But to me, the most terrifying thought is the idea that there might be life all over, the, that civilizations pop up, but they never coincide and that they're never able to communicate. To me, the sad, the, the most terrifying, there's all of these perhaps wonderful civilizations and they will never speak to each other and they may well never coincide. Yeah. Coincide. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree with that thought. Actually, that's how I see it as well. Um, I, I, I see as we, as we discover all these planets. I see, although I love the Earth, I don't think it's entirely that special in the, in the sort of zoo of planets in the universe. And so, I think there probably is life elsewhere. There has been life elsewhere, and there will be in the future. I do think they'll coincide in time, just probabilistically. If life is popping up all over the place, they'll. But you have exactly the point, which is that the spatial scales involved, and Lisa can talk more about this, I'm sure. The spatial scales involved mean that actually, even if I sent a signal to my nearest neighbour where there was life, it would probably take longer than the history of um, our advanced civilization for the signal to get there. So even if somebody did one day get it, we'd be long gone. And so that's, I think you're exactly right. That's the sad thing. And it's really interesting for us to think about the, these, these isolated pockets that may never be able to realize that others are out there. Lisa, this is a very important question about disappearing supermassive black holes. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. This is Ard would like to know. Uh, did you ever find out what happened to a supermassive black hole, which suddenly seemed to have disappeared in Able 2261? Yeah, I found it behind the sofa actually when I cleaned <laughs> Um, but yeah, this is weird. Like, okay, supermassive black hole. That it's not just um, this kind of theoretical concept of this scary, massive, giant, um, blood-sucking monster. But this is a real thing that is in, in the centre of pretty much every large galaxy. 
um, in the universe probably. And we know they came about very long time ago, um, even like half a billion years after the Big Bang and the very first galaxies that we can see, they've already formed these these supermassive black holes. So they, they're just huge, um, massive objects that sit in the middle of galaxies. And there was this study done of um, a distant galaxy um, where essentially they, the scientists couldn't find the black hole in the middle. You might wonder, um, you know, how you find a black hole in a, in a galaxy. Well, in our galaxy, which is obviously very close by, we're inside of it, um, the black hole can be seen by looking at stars that are orbiting the black hole. So we just see basically a bunch of nothing and then this this group of stars that are orbiting very um, very regularly. And um, the team Andrea Gez led um, has just won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago about that work. But um, another way that we can see black holes is by how they rip apart stars and clouds of gas when uh, they get too close. They rip apart stars and the, 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 the gas starts um, kind of gurgling down the plug hole in a, a circling motion like that around the black hole. So even though the black hole is black and it kind of reminds me of something from Red Dwarf, um, an argument about um, scanning a black hole. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, we find that, you know, these amazing, these amazing black holes really do exist. We can see them from the hot gas that is um, circling around them. So this team of scientists were looking at a galaxy. They couldn't find the black hole at the centre. But, but it's really not that surprising because when we look at stars, um, uh, sorry, when we look at galaxies, we know that they, they commonly interact um, they don't just sit on their own. They don't just sit apart from one another. They they socially interact because gravity pulls them together. So quite often galaxies are actually uh, consuming each other, ripping each other apart, passing through each other like ghosts. Um, in fact, our Milky Way will do so with the Andromeda galaxy in about 3.8 billion years' time, and we will become part of a new galaxy called Milkdromeda. So um, in those interactions, sometimes gravity can sort of wibble wobble everything different directions and the black hole might be thrown out um, in, in one of these events. So perhaps the black hole is just floating through space with nothing to eat, it can't shine, um, and with no stars to orbit it, we can't see it because it's too far away for that anyway. So, you know, black holes maybe sometimes can get lonely. I'm not entirely sure entirely sure it's a good idea for uh, astronomers to take on that. You know, dog breeders have cockapoos and things like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you just call them? Milk dromeda? Milk dromeda. Yeah, I'm like not a... sure that's a good idea. I think we need to cut that off before it gets started. <laughs> like like a black hole of doodle. Now, before <laughs> it gets ridiculous. Um, I apologise. <laughs> Um, the uh, question uh, picking up on uh, your show and tell, Helen, where Ronnie was interested in uh, how you were talking about metals and yet you called them crystals. How can we have metal crystals? I mean, this is something that, again, another thing that I had no idea. My, my son was doing his homework a couple of years ago and he had to shade in all the metals on the periodic table. And I went, are you sure that's right? Because I had no idea just how much of the periodic table, things that I had no idea were metals. So can you explain? Because for a lot of people instinctually, they do not. They would consider crystals and metals to be somehow divided. Yeah. So yeah. So quite most of the periodic table, I think, is metals. Actually, probably. Mm. Um, so a the the problem comes with the the sort of popular definition of a crystal as being a diamond. That's where that's where the, the miss the sort of the issue starts because crystal is like this uh, colourless hard thing with. Um, you know, uh, flat faces that sparkles. And that is what a crystal is, with the exception of it being transparent and having to sparkle. So the definition of a crystal is something, it, it's, it's a solid where atoms are arranged in a regular pattern. So it can be like lots of egg boxes. So if you imagine you've got, you have a really big egg box, right, with lots, like with a grid of eggs, and then you put another egg box on top and another egg box on top, and then you can count down the eggs that way and you can count across and, and you can do that. That's one way to organise your eggs. Um, what you could do, you're probably more likely to see it with apples and oranges on a grocer's stall, is when people pile up a sort of hexagonal pattern. So there's a little triangle of oranges and then one orange on top to make one little pyramid. And then you make more little triangles of oranges next to it. And so you get offset rows. So instead of being like egg boxes with um, tall columns and set out like a grid, 
it, it's got a regular pattern, but it's a slightly different regular pattern. It's got triangles in it. And a crystal is any arrangement of atoms that repeats itself like that. Now, metals are really good at stacking themselves up because they've got a large electron cloud around the outside of them. So they can just kind of sit. They don't have any um, sort of directionalities, but they, they like having atoms of the same type around them. So they sit in these regular patterns because that's the closest they can get to each other. And they're really stable. The thing about if you think about the, the whole point of egg boxes is that if you put an egg in that position, in its place in an egg box, it's very hard for it to roll sideways or up or down. It can't really go anywhere. So your crystal is a really stable structure. And um, so metals are crystals. You can, if you really, really try, make amorphous metals, which means that they're a bit more wibbly wobbly. Uh, they're a bit more irregular, but you have to really try. They don't like it. So uh, as soon as you heat them up a bit and cool them down, they will go back into a regular crystal structure. So so that's what a crystal really is. And metals are, it, it is also true that, that most crystals, what people think of as crystals, are crystals. If I'd, ha if I'd been a bit more aware, I'd have popped next door to get some of my crystal collection and brought them back, like amethyst and quartz. These are crystals. And there's also a structure, but the difference with those type of crystals is those are combinations of different types of atoms. So in quartz, it's silica and oxygen, silica and oxygen that are arranged in a pattern. And so instead of every egg in the egg box being the same, you've got two different types of eggs that are arranged in, this is stretching an analogy a bit, but you get the picture, that are arranged in a specific relationship <coughs> next to each other. So the, the, the rock crystals are combinations of atoms. It's very rare to get single pure metals in nature with the exception of gold occasionally, things like that. Um, but we do, but metals, just a lump of metal, once humans have created it, is almost, has a crystalline structure. And so if you're bouncing things off the different layers, you can see the layers within the crystal um, because absolutely they, they are there. And that's when you bend a metal, for example, not to give you the whole material science lecture, when you bend a metal, what happens is the layers of crystals slide over each other. So that's why metals are ductile. Um, and malleable is that the, 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 those those egg box the, the egg box layers can slide over each other in different directions. So so yeah so metals are crystals even though they don't sparkle and they're a bit more complicated. But it's because they've got some kind of regular egg box structure. Uh, Thank you very much that. for your egg. Ooh, oh yes, go on. Can I add? Um, actually, there's another type of metal which is quite fun, which is um, if you go into inside Jupiter, for example, you get something called metallic hydrogen. And so this happens when, because, the, because as you go deeper into Jupiter, it's really hot and the pressure is crazy. And you end up um, with like a soup, like a fluid of protons and electrons that acts just like a metal. And that's why Jupiter has an enormous magnetic field around it, because it has this large portions of it are made of metallic hydrogen, which is um, unusually, you know, you don't find it just sitting outside because we don't have the temperatures and pressures you need, but um, you can even force hydrogen to become a, a metal in those circumstances. It's quite fun. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, very quick questions. We've run out of time, but Andy would like to know, Susie, as you've kind of done astronaut training already, have you, did you do the current application for uh, ESA? Yeah, it's not that easy, actually. I mean, you say I've done it already, but uh, it's a little more complex than that. Yeah, me and 22,000 other people will put our names in the hat and see what happens. <laughs> Brilliant. And this is going to throw it in because uh, Winston wanted to know, just as steady state was seen as the irrefutable truth by many, is there any chance that thinking could be that the current thinking could be seen as equally silly 100 years from now? And I just wanted to, to, to ask you, Lisa, because steady state, how long did that really have in its existence? Because Fred Hoyle, as far as I remember, part of the thing that that idea came out from a 1940s horror film called Dead of Night, uh, where he watched the, the the structure of that plot and it kind of inspired some of his thinking. Yeah, I mean, the, the, idea, the idea of steady state was trying to really explain, um, you know, observations of the universe. And there was a lot of there was a lot at that time, huge amount of debate about the size of the universe and, and you know, why some things were observed Um trying to explain essentially what we now know as the expansion of the universe and and you know that led to understanding of the big bang and the whole essentially the whole model of the universe but the, the steady state idea being that um everything's expanding but things kind of uh, pop in <laughs> into existence between everything else which is a, a bit odd i guess it's a bit like some of the fudge factor um theoretical ideas that that you know physicists have always come up with because you're trying you're trying to ex it if you you can do two, science two ways, you can uh, theoretically sort of invent scenarios like Einstein did and say, um, 
let's imagine, let's do a thought experiment, what would happen if, and go through the mathematics and try and explain something or predict something. Or you can look at experimental evidence um, and, you know, things like the galaxies moving away from us and being redshifted um, and try and explain what that means about the future or the past. Um, and when, <laughs> when you, the problem is when you observe something odd and don't understand it, you can come up with all sorts of nonsense, which isn't correct. And only one possible scenario would, would be the true um, explanation. So I absolutely agree with the, the premise of the question um, that, you know, some of our scientific ideas today may in the future appear rather daft. And that is the point. That is the point of science. It's to uh, interrogate scenarios and possibilities. Um, but some of our thinking and some of our scenarios, I think, will be around. And I certainly think we have a good handle um, and a good understanding on certain things like Einstein's theories of uh, general and special re relativity they've always worked for us and we've interrogated those for 100 years um our you know quantum theory um we can't sort of marry that with relativity so we don't know if those ideas will appear daft in 100 years time um but it's very interesting it's very i think the way that science evolves and scientific thinking evolves um it, it, it's really not about holding on to an idea and 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 making that your own and, and, and grabbing onto it and keeping it. It's about using an idea in order to get to a next level of understanding or a next level of interrogation and then moving on. Um, you know, science is what serves us for now and then we move on and I think that's okay. Can I add Brilliant. something really important very quickly? That those past ideas are not silly. The steady state theory was really important in the development of what became Big Bang Theory because they didn't know either way their current logic couldn't make sense and they pushed each other for evidence and nobody thinks any the less of Herman Bondi and the others who um, didn't thought the steady state theory was the way to go because that was part of the development of science. So it's really important that we don't look back at those scientific ideas and say that they were daft or silly. We have information that they did not have and if they had not had those ideas, the the opposing ideas would not have developed. So scientific ideas only ever really develop in opposition of two or three groups pushing each other going, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And it's a tennis match. And so you have to have an other theory in order to make that tennis match work. And so it's really important we don't dismiss the idea because they did not know, but they're, they're building blocks in the foundation. So we should give them credit for that. Brilliant. Thank you all very much. In fact, if you if you'd like to know more about why Fred Hoyle remains so attached to steady state theory, you can read my book, The Importance of Being Interested, which comes out on the 7th of October. There we go. That's the first time I've done my new book plug. And you're going to hear a lot of them building up to October. Um, thank you very much, uh, Lisa, Helen and Susie. Uh, we will be back at 10 a.m. next week. Uh, always get in contact if there's particular subjects you'd like us to deal with. Uh, we will put together a, a panel that will we'll deal with that subject. We've got a few specials coming up. Uh, as I said, tips for existence as well. We've got uh, it's. Uh, Anil Seth is the current one. Before that, we're talking to Katie Brand about her journey from uh, being quite uh, kind of uh, born again Christian into then her journey towards atheism and, and, and fascination with science, amongst many other things. Thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton. Also, new book shambles coming up as well. Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Lisa only has a tiny bit of it left. We've still got hours to waste. It's a really good Sunday. Enjoy. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at cosmicshambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at cosmic shambles or cosmic shambles network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network.